Well, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, and that to chapter 1, to verse 57, as we continue on in our exposition of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Hear now God's word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord has shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who had heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Let's pray together. Good and gracious Father, we thank you for your presence among your people and the privilege of hearing your word. We ask as we open the book that you would reveal to us more of your Son through the Spirit who is our teacher. By your grace, would our hearts be affected, our minds illumined, and our wills submitted. Would we see Christ as more than enough for all that we could ever ask or need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Unless the Lord builds a house, they who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards a city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is futile for you to rise up early, to stay up late, to eat the bread of painful labor. This is how he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, if you didn't know, I just cited for you the words of King Solomon from Psalm chapter 127. And one of the questions often asked is, what does building a house or guarding a city have anything to do with having kids? And the answer in the wisdom of the psalmist is that God is responsible for it all. That the Lord who builds the house and who guards the city is the Lord who gives children. Which is why the king says, he says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And it appears that in Luke chapter 1, that the people who resided in the town around the hill country of Judah, they, they understood that. They celebrated and rejoiced at the arrival of Elizabeth's baby boy. But before the birth of John the Baptist, You'll remember that the young virgin Mary, upon hearing the news that she would mother the Son of God, left her home to visit with her older cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant. And more than sharing notes on what to expect when you're expecting, these two women shared in the fellowship of something far more significant over the promises of God. And what came forth from the lips of these two expectant mothers was praise to God for fulfilling 
His promise to save His people. This is all that Mary and Elizabeth talked about under the roof of that house. There was much joy and there was much fellowship. And for a considerable amount of time. Notice in chapter 1 verse 56 that Mary remained with her for about three months and then returned to her home. Well, you may have caught this, but notice that when Mary received the news of her conception back in chapter 1 verse 36, she was told that Elizabeth was already six months pregnant. And so we find that Mary stayed with her cousin until, I believe, the end of her pregnancy. Now, Mary had either, again, left back home just prior to John being born, or she was there with Elizabeth at his birth. Again, I would lean towards the view that Mary had stayed to see the birth of John. Why else would Luke have provided those timely details? Well, if she did, then Mary was able to witness God's promise to an old and formerly barren woman coming to full fruition, giving her more reason to know that if God had delivered on His promise to Elizabeth, He would do the same for her. Now, it could be that upon seeing the baby born is when Mary returned to her own home. But the birth of John was cause of, for, for great celebration. And that's one of the first things that I want us to see here. Now, I have a total of four things that I want to highlight for us as we move through the narrative of John's birth, and I'll give them as we go. But the first thing that we need to see at the outset here is that John's birth was a communal joy. And we find that there was a whole host of people who partook in the festivities of the newborn. Luke tells us in chapter 1, verse 58, that there were neighbors and relatives rejoicing at the news that Elizabeth had given birth to a son. And they even put in their suggestions for the baby's name. It was a community affair, one of great happiness. It was a cause for great celebration. And this is what usually happens at the arrival of a baby. Friends and family members are notified. It's a very momentous occasion. Uh, here in our church, uh, we usually send out an email to all the members to welcome the little one. There should be one for Lemuel Lee being emailed out very soon. But when a baby is born, others are able to join in on the excitement. And a lot of times food will be prepared, meals will be delivered, Gifts will be given like diapers and little clothes. And I imagine that this is what the people involved in the lives of Elizabeth and Zechariah did. They rejoiced and celebrated with this family. And remember what the angel Gabriel told Zechariah in that encounter in the temple. It was being realized right then and there when he said, you will have joy, you will have gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Well, as I mulled over this passage this week, I couldn't help but notice what a stark contrast that is in our culture today. I, I've mentioned it before here and there in Luke. Sadly, we, we no longer live in a society that rejoices at the birth of babies, but at the destruction of them. That is very telling of a community of people to put to death the weakest of the weak. It, it speaks to their depravity and the unrestrained measure of their evil. It is 
Beloved, repulsive. It is reprehensible. I recently found out that there is such a thing as Abortion Provider Appreciation Day. And I thought it was a recent thing. I didn't know. But I found out that since 1996, a day to celebrate those who provide abortion care. Think about those two words for a minute. Abortion care. You can't get any more upside down than that. Those two words cannot be any more contradictory. Abortion care. To celebrate the massacre of the unborn all in the name of care or women's rights. Beloved, there will be a day when the Almighty of heaven and earth will fully display His holy and divine rights. I think about that scene in the book of Revelation. And Pastor Dave just preached from Revelation to the children. When the people of the earth shouted out for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. John tells us there in Revelation 6, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is very sobering. There will be a great reckoning. And for us as believers, we pray that in the light of this great reckoning, that there will be a great awakening. That sinners will turn and find their safety in the Lamb, lest they meet Him in His wrath. Abortion is one of the greatest evils of our day, which the Lord will not overlook. To add to that, you know, these kinds of narratives are sometimes challenging. It's because while there are those who rejoice over the destruction of babies, there are those who struggle to have them. And it's a very painful process. It's not easy. And I don't know why that for some that trial becomes their lot. All I know is that for those who trust God, He always does what is best. And He does all things well. And I think that should be a reminder for us as a church to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Well, here in Luke chapter 1, the people of God rejoiced over the birth of John. Secondly, notice the description of the joy of Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives. Look with me in verse 58. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord has shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. When Luke describes for us the news which had reached the community about the birth, he doesn't say, and they heard that Elizabeth gave birth to a boy, and they rejoiced. They rejoiced with her. Or, that Elizabeth had a smooth and safe delivery, and they rejoiced with her. No, but he says, they heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Which tells us that more than the fact that she had a baby, and even more than the fact that her barren womb was opened, was the fact that God had shown mercy. You see, what took place in the hill country of Judah, more than anything else, was the mercy of God. That's the real reason for the joy. Yes, there is joy in the birth of a child. No one denies that. But the very source of the joy is not the child here, but rather the mercy of the Lord. And here's the thing. Luke is simply 
narrating the story. This is not his own interpretation. In other words, this isn't something that he has injected into the narrative, but he is simply telling us what the neighbors and relatives heard. And what did they hear? That the Lord showed great mercy. But let me ask, from whom did they hear about that mercy? It was Elizabeth herself. As Elizabeth told those around her about the birth of her baby boy, rather than telling them the results, she told them the cause. God has shown great mercy to me. Here was Elizabeth, and for years she and her husband had tried to conceive, but to no avail. Year after year they they tried and tried, but there was no success. Decades upon decades pass, and as they reached that age beyond childbearing, they finally accepted the painful reality that they would be without child. But God had provided for them. In doing the impossible, God showed His kindness to them. And Elizabeth interpreted the birth of her child as the great mercy of God. That the baby that she was now holding against her aging body not only came from God, but was an undeserved gift from God. And you see, church, the application here is Elizabeth teaches us how we ought to interpret all that which God gives to us. From the big things to the small things. She teaches us how we ought to view all that we have and all the provisions that He provides for us. Psalm 50 reminds us that everything belongs to the Lord. For every beast of the forest is mine, says the Lord, the cattle on a thousand hills. And thus, anything we receive from His hand is considered a gift. It is unmerited. It is the mercy of God. And to know that, to believe that, Christian, it is imperative to our lives. Now, why is that so? Just to be thankful? No. It's because there is an intimate connection between our understanding of God's mercy and our experience of joy. You see, the very basis in which Elizabeth rejoiced wasn't grounded in her baby. It was grounded on something far greater. The kindness in which God had showed her. The undeserving manner in which God had treated her. The reason why we are often so discontent with our lives is because we have lost sight of God's mercy. The reason why we go about our lives with bitterness and grumbling and complaining is because we believe in our heart of hearts we deserve better, right? That's why. We feel ourselves more deserving than what we have received. But then when we truly grasp and comprehend that great mercy with which God has given to us and lavished upon us, all is changed. And not because the circumstance has changed, but because our hearts have been changed. Our understanding has been corrected. We are able to see with clarity all that we have as a result of His kindness and His mercy. Which is why you can observe 
For example, a couple painfully struggling to conceive, yet living in the fullness of joy. How does that happen? An understanding of the mercy of God. You see, Christian, unless we see that mercy, there will be no joy. And let me also say that it will also be, if there is, if we cannot see that mercy, it will also be to the detriment of our worship. Because Paul, he tells us in Romans 12 that our ability to properly worship God hinges on our understanding of the mercy of God. He says in Romans 12, I I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It hinges on the mercies of God. And so without the recognition of His mercy, we will live our lives in direct opposition to His will. But here in Luke, we find that Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives, they rejoice because they had heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Well, the third thing that I want to bring to your attention in this narrative is that notice that the naming of the child became sort of an, an ordeal. Look at verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, we know, as Luke has told us in the beginning of the first chapter, they faithfully followed the commandments of the law. And so on the eighth day, it meant that the time had come to circumcise the, the weak old child and the baby needed the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham to bless and to save his people. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, they believed in that promise. And so it was right and fitting to circumcise John on the eighth day as instructed. So this was a big day. This was a big day. And those very neighbors and relatives who rejoiced in the birth, they were now in the home of the parents to welcome the baby into the fellowship of God's people. And we're told that this was the time in which the baby's name was formerly or formally given. And parents, you'll be familiar with this process. There comes the time after the birth of the baby in which you'll have to fill out his or her name to create a birth certificate. And most of the time, parents know their baby's name. My wife and I, for our two girls, we did. But I, like many fathers, didn't really have much input. Every suggestion I made was immediately disregarded. But, okay, I don't know. But uh, according to Luke, it was the custom for the firstborn son to be named after his father. And everyone expected on that eighth day that he would be called Zachariah Jr. But to everyone's surprise, Elizabeth, she said, no, that's not his name. Erase that name from his birth certificate. And she was being very emphatic about it. No. And she gives no explanation, no reasoning. Just know he shall be called John. John? And notice it becomes sort of an ordeal here. It causes a little bit of a commotion. Her friends and relatives, they push back and they start kind of a protest. Now parents, have you ever had this happen to you with your own kids? Where you received pushback when it came to naming 
Your own child? How dare they? How dare they? And you know the comments, they'll never be direct, more passive-aggressive. Oh, are you sure about that name? Have you really settled on that name? What are some other ones that you may have thought of? Right? Again, I, I confess. When I preach, I confess a lot of my sins. I confess, I was, I was guilty of this. I said, D'Angelo? <laughs> but his brother's name is Hanel. You sure? With an apostrophe after the D? What about this name? But Pastor Dave and Angela said, no. Well, Elizabeth also said, no. And notice here in the narrative, everyone gathered there. They were confused. John, no one has that name in the family. And it's not that it was a strange name. It was actually a common name, but it wasn't expected. And these neighbors and relatives, seeing how firm and determined that she was, they, they turned to Zechariah. Now remember, Zechariah, he can't talk. He hasn't been able to speak for nine months. Well, let's see what he has to say about this. Look at verse 62. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And again, you can just imagine, there's a little bit of a scene that is being made here. Notice it appears that John was not only unable to talk, but also unable to hear. Instead of just asking him through words, they had to make signs to him. We just say a lot of charades took place there in that house. But John, he, he had figured out a system to communicate. He used a, a sort of notepad, a clay tablet covered in wax in which he could etch out letters with a stylus. Look at verse 63. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. Well, as we take a step back for a moment from the story, why were these two so adamant about naming the child John? And why does Luke go out of his way to describe for us how John was named? He could have just said in verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and they called him John. That's it. And he could have just done that. But Luke wants us to see what God was doing in the lives of these ordinary people. We, we know about Zechariah. And to any outside observer, this wasn't just an ordinary birth. He and his wife were old, beyond the years of having children. God had done the impossible in opening the barren womb of Elizabeth. But Zechariah, if you remember, he was made a mute. And as we've just seen, he was both mute and deaf, unable to speak, unable to hear, and that because of his unbelief. And you'll recall that when he was told by the angel that his wife would bear him a son, he responded by questioning whether God was able to do it. How shall I know this? Look at how old we are. And God, rather than to let Zechariah continue in such a proud state, humbled him by closing his mouth and his ears. Now you might think that Zechariah should have begun to speak when John was born. Right? Look back at what the angel said to him. Look back with me in chapter 1, verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day 
that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Well, how come John wasn't able to speak when these things took place? Here's the fulfillment of his promise. Elizabeth gives birth to John. The people rejoice, but notice John was kept in his condition for eight more days. Why? It's because not all that God had purposed in Zechariah had come to pass. Yes, John was born, but there was one more thing left. It was Zechariah. And here in this moment, when the people turn to Zechariah to ask him, his name should be Zechariah. No, shouldn't that be his name? He wrote on that tablet, his name is John. Why? Because God said so. It was the demonstration of faith in taking God at His word. Through nine months, unbelief had turned to belief. God had brought Him who was proud to humble obedience, broken submission. And you see, transformation had taken place in Zechariah. And the words on that tablet showed that God had done a gracious work in this man's life. Look at verse 64. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. You see, God wasn't finished. He wasn't finished yet in fulfilling his promise to Zechariah and answering his prayer. Now notice that once he wrote John on that tablet, that it says there, in our text, that his mouth was opened immediately. You see that word immediately is such an important word here in this narrative that we can't overlook. Let me ask, who closed Zechariah's mouth? It was God. Well, who then opened it? It was God. And the sense here is this. It's as if God was eagerly waiting to open Zechariah's mouth. That it was his desire all along to free him of his condition, to relieve him of his affliction, to heal him immediately. And you see, that very sentiment is expressed later on in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus gives us a, a parable of the prodigal son. And you'll be very familiar with this story. That when the son returned back to his father and confessed, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you remember what the very first word out of his father's mouth was? He turned to his servants and said, Quickly, immediately, bring the best robe and put it on my son. It's to say that the father was without any hesitation to respond and receive his son. And Jesus there gave us a picture of the very willingness of God to receive those of similar heart. Yes, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're not a Christian, God is willing to forgive. You see, His grace is greater than all our sin. He forgives those who come to Him in humble faith. 
And you see, we are naturally proud. We're naturally proud. And we believe that we don't have to answer to anyone but ourselves. This is our problem. This is humanity's sin problem seen in the actions of the prodigal son. In sin, human beings have turned away from Creator God to serve themselves. And God who is holy opposes the proud. He opposes sinful men and women such as ourselves. And He will bring about His opposition through His unrelenting wrath. But for the sinful proud, God became flesh and humbled Himself and came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God sent His Son who was without sin to come and die on the cross for sinners to receive that wrathful opposition, the punishment of wrath on behalf of proud, undeserving sinners. But God raised Him who died from the dead. That Christ who humbled Himself was exalted to give new life to those who turn and trust in Him. And if you are without the saving merits of Christ, God is willing to forgive. If you but come to Him in humble faith, looking to Christ and despairing of yourself to save you from your sins, God is willing to forgive. A broken and contrite heart, a repentant heart, oh God, you will not despise, is what He says. Come to Him in trusting faith, and He will not hesitate. He will immediately save you. Well, the fourth and the last thing that deserves our attention here is the response of those who had witnessed what just took place. Look at verse 65. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Upon seeing all that had just taken place with Zechariah, whose mouth had been shut for nine months now, blessing God, the people, the people, they wondered. All of these events were talked about all throughout the hill country of Judea. And the great question and really the conclusion which everyone came to was, what then shall this child be? You see, all that took place caused the people to focus in on this baby boy to ask, who will he be? What great plan does God have in store for this child? Because again, the reason why they wondered was because this wasn't just an ordinary birth, but one that involved an old and barren uh, mother and one that involved a formerly mute father. God was up to something. And And though they couldn't see it, As of yet, well, we know what God was doing. He was working in the life of this elderly couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, to bring about a child by the name of John. And it seems that at his birth, there was such an emphasis that his name be no other name. Not not Zachariah after his father, but John. His name had to be John. Well, we know names have meaning. And you see, when you put all of these characters together, Zechariah, Elizabeth, John, 
God is telling us a story. God is telling us a story with this family. You may recall that Zechariah's name, Zechariah, means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. Well, Elizabeth's name means my God, Eli, is faithful. Shava, Elishava. Well, John's name, and we saw this, means the Lord is gracious. And then there's the sweetest name of all, Jesus, the Lord saves. And when you put these characters together, we find that faithful God, who is gracious, has remembered His promise to save. And isn't that the story that we're seeing here? God is telling us the story of salvation and He is using these people as a part of that story and He is using these people to bring it about. But as the birth of John the Baptist comes to an end, the people in the hill country of Judea, they were left wondering, who, who will this child be? What will become of this child? And again, as the story ends, All the attention, all the focus from all the people is placed upon this child. Why? It's because this is just as God had purposed. For everyone to focus in on this person in order that He might point everyone to the one who is greater, the person of Jesus Christ. You see, this child, all the focus is on this child so that this child can point to another child. That's who this child will be. He will be a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And that to prepare the people. Now, have you ever asked, why why did the people, why did they need to be prepared? Sometimes people ask, well, Why did they need to be prepared? Why did John have to do that? It's because the people, they had the wrong idea of redemption. They regarded the Messiah to be a worldly ruler whose task would be to free the people from the bondage of Rome. They thought the redemption they needed was earthly, material. And they had no understanding that the redemption they needed was spiritual. Which is why the Jewish people saw themselves as righteous. And they saw everyone else as Gentiles and dogs. Who would this child be? The one who would come to tell the people that they needed to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was calling people to realize their need not of an earthly or material redemption, but a spiritual one from their guilt, from their sins. And isn't it true, Christian, that we live in a world whose thinking is not so different? That what our unbelieving friends and our neighbors and our relatives, you might say in the hill country of Judea, are all seeking a redemption from that which is material, a redemption from that which is earthly. Whether it be a societal redemption or a political redemption, Redemption or a financial redemption or a relational redemption or a self redemption. 
And they are completely unaware of the redemption that they truly need in Christ. And you see, Christian believer, the question is, who will point them to the Savior? Who? Who will tell them of God's Redeemer? Who will be the voice crying out the gospel of God's salvation to them? Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in London, he said, quote, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Beloved, we have a message. God has given to us the story of salvation that is able to save souls. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice the narrative of John's birth ends in the last line of Verse 66, like this. And the hand of the Lord was with him. You know, as we go through the gospel accounts, we find that the hand of the Lord was with him before he was born. It was with him in his mother's womb. The hand of the Lord was with him when he called the people to repentance. It was with him when he baptized in the Jordan. It was with him when he was thrown into prison. And the the hand of the Lord was with him when he was martyred. And yes, in the end, John did die for Christ. But what mattered most, what mattered more, was that Christ would die for him. That the hand of the Lord was upon him. Him. Church, may that encourage us to be bold and faithful in our own witness as we proclaim that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than Christ Jesus the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of our salvation. That you who are faithful would be so gracious to sinners such as ourselves in remembering your promise to save us. And that through your Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. And we pray that you would awaken us to see the reality in those who are perishing around us. We confess that our gospel witness has been weak. We have not lived as salt and light of the earth. Our saltiness has become bland. Our light has become dim. Forgive us for our cowardice. Forgive us for our lethargy. Give to us a spiritual urgency, a holy desperation to see sinners reconciled. And we also pray that our lives would be a living testimony of the redemption that is found in Christ and no one and nothing else. Would the lost see the unspeakable joy that we have in Christ even in our sorrow, even in our affliction, that it would be clear that Christ is our all in all. We ask and we pray that you would do that in us. In the name of our great and holy 
and triune God we pray. Amen.